All right, so new day, new series. I almost knocked that expensive guitar over. I don't know how much it cost, actually. Let's see. You could judge a reaction by uh, who's ever's owner is, how quick they come when you start, like, like, start picking it up and people, you know, so. New series today. He has a name. It is a series on uh, the names of God found in the Hebrew Old Testament, and in particular today we will be talking about Uh, what we'll call the foundational name, the primary name of God, the name that God says, this is my name forever and for all generations. This is how people should know me. And the reason why this is incredibly important is that names in the Bible function differently than how they do today. Names are always grounded and tied up in a story. They're meant to explain something about you. So for instance, my name is Isaac, and my name means laughter. Uh, and if you know, someone laughed, like, that was messed up. <laughs> uh, yeah, off to a good start. So if you know the story of Isaac in the Bible, you know why they named him Laughter. My daughter's name is Anaya. It comes from a, a couple Hebrew words, Anayach, and it means God has answered, uh, particularly Yahweh has answered. And Uh, We always tell the story, or not always, but when we do tell it to my daughter, we talk about like, yeah, God answered us, like, but in more ways than we could ever have imagined. Like, God answered way beyond what your mom and I could ever think or fathom. You are God's answer to us. My wife's name's Michelle. It's a feminine version of the French, Michael, which of course sounds like Michael, where it goes back to, which is found in the Bible, is who is like God. But people named their children uh, to tell a story, to try to describe them, to reveal their identity. So when we're talking about the name of God in kind of a biblical worldview, you have to think of it like this. It's not just his name, but it represents him. It reveals his character, his personhood. It reveals what he is actually like. And for all of this emphasis in kind of modern Christian culture on having a personal relationship with God, we rarely come to Him in personal terms. Now, you may be saying, well, I know God's name. It's it's God. That's why why my mom, when I was growing up, said, don't use the Lord's name in vain and don't say, oh, my God. Not really. God's not His name. It's, It's what He is. Now, Parents, don't be mad at me. You can still tell your kids, don't say that if you don't want to. But that's not his name. God and Lord are titles. They're not who he is. And so it's incredibly important for us today to say, what is his name and what does it reveal about who he is? Now, before we do that, though, I want you to think in your mind's eye about the word God. And what I mean by that is, What comes to your brain, your mind, what do you picture when I say the word God? Think, what's there? Is it sort of like a cruel God, a distant God, a nice God, a a loving God? Is it like an old white dude with a beard who's bald? What what is it? Just, Just, there's no right or wrong answer in this. Just what comes to your mind when I say the word God. Now, A.W. Tozer said that what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to mind when you hear the word God is the most important thing about you, according to A.W. Tozer. 
So today, we want to know who is God, what's his name, and what is he like. In order to do that, you have to go way back to the start of your Bibles in a book called Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, and this is where God actually reveals to a guy named Moses his name, his name that he says shall be my name for all generations, forever and ever and ever. Exodus chapter 2 begins like this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, here's the setting, the backstory. There are these people called Hebrews, and they've been enslaved for quite some time. There's debate about the exact chronology, but suffice to say it's been a few hundred years. They've been enslaved by the global superpower, the empire of the ancient world, Egypt, and they're forced into hard labor year after year after year after year. The Hebrews believe that somewhere way back in the past, their great, 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 great grandpa, Abraham, was given a promise by this God. And they only know him as the God of Abraham at this point. But they believe that God made their great-great-great-great-great-grandpa Abraham a promise. And he said, to Abraham, I'm going to give you a people, a nation, many descendants, descendants that would outnumber the stars. And through this blessing that I am promising you, your descendants are going to bless the entire world. Now, things don't go so well, though. Rather than multiplying and blessing the world and receiving this blessing, Abraham's descendants are enslaved in Egypt, and they've been there for a very, very, very long time. Now, put yourself in these people's shoes. Would you be able to maintain faith in some promise, in some God that supposedly had this covenant with your great, 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 great grandfather? Year after year, it's slavery. You are a slave. Your father was a slave. Your father's father was a slave. And you know your sons and daughters will also be slaves. How do you maintain faith and hope in that environment? I mean, compare that to us. So many of us at points in our lives have lost faith over much smaller situations and circumstances. I mean, people straight up leave church because they like get bored or they found out, you know, the vice chair of the choir said something bad about me on Easter and I'm so offended and I leave, the, I leave going to church. I'm so hurt. I'm not to say there's not real hurt stuff that goes on in the church, but just put things in perspective. People leave God, leave the church, leave their relationship because of so many things. And these people are clinging to a promise that was supposedly made hundreds of years before to their great-great-grandpa. And all they know about this God is that he's their God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They know the burning heat of the Egyptian sun. They know oppression. They know the sound of the whip. They know the sting of it upon their back and they know that their children will face it. It's in this context that the people of Israel are said to cry out to God. And the word for cry here is one of the most powerful words in, in the Hebrew scripture. The Hebrew word here is ze'achah. And it doesn't mean they just, they cried out like when you stub your toe and you cry out. 
or, or when you get your feelings hurt, or it's at the end of a sad movie and you shed a tear. That's not the crying that you, zi'acha is the, the collective cries and groaning and agonizing moans of a people who are oppressed. It is the agonizing plea of the helpless victim saying, God, where are you? And Exodus says that the zi'acha goes up and God hears the people of Israel. And then the last line, and God knew. And the scene immediately switched as the Exodus story goes on, and it introduces us to this guy, Moses. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, I skipped the first chapter and a half of Exodus, and that's where it actually first introduces us to Moses. His story briefly said is this. Moses is, is a Hebrew. He's an Israelite, but he's brought up in the household of Egypt. He sees an Egyptian abusing a Hebrew person, he kills the guy in defense of him, but now he's a, a murderer of an Egyptian, so he has to run for his life into danger, across the wilderness, and kind of try to start a new life in some strange land. Lucky for him, he lands, lands up in this region called Midian. He gets married, has some kids, and at this point has left everything behind him. All the stuff in Egypt is in his past. He's living the good life, or as close as the good life you can get as a in Midian. I mean, it's not, it's not pretty. But you know how it is. It's like you, you have all this, this pain and hurt in your past. You fled for your life. Now you just want to live a normal life. Raise some cattle, raise some kids, call it a day. Moses is living an absolutely ordinary life, but something extraordinary is about to occur. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burning. So he's just out there doing his thing, and he sees this bush on fire, and somehow it's not being consumed. And... A rabbi was once asked by his, his disciples, why did God choose a thorn bush to reveal his divine presence? Now, we most likely know what bush this is from that region, region but they, they asked him, uh, why did God reveal himself in a thorn bush? And the rabbi responds, if God would have re revealed himself in a carob tree or a mulberry tree, you'd be asking me this exact same question. But then he says, lest you go away empty-handed, God chose to reveal himself in the humble thorn bush to say there is no place on earth that is bereft of his presence. Or as a 17th century Welsh Anglican philosopher poet George Herbert said, the holy haunts the everyday. There is no place on this thing we call earth that is divorced from his presence. Now, you can say that in theological terms, God is omnipresent, but it sounds so much more beautiful, right, to say there's nowhere that is bereft of his presence. No matter where you go, God is near. And so as we enter into the rest of this text, know that Moses is about to enter into holy and sacred ground. 
And we as a group and as a, as a church are walking into a holy, sacred place because as we read this story, you have to know the words are holy, the text is holy, the story is holy, and God is near. He's close. He's not far off or distant. He's here. He knows who you are. He knows your name. Augustine would say, God is closer to me than myself. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you stand, you're standing is holy ground. God calls out to Moses and Mo Moses responds, here I am. Hinani in Hebrew. And the reason why this phrase is important, it's used all throughout the Old Testament. Whenever someone receives a call from God, think if you know the, the, the biblical stories in the Old Testament, the story of Samuel hearing a voice like three times as he's falling asleep. And then he says, here I am. This is how the prophet responds. This is how God's people respond when they are called. No matter where you're at today, in a good time or a bad time, God is here and he's near. And as he calls you, your response is, Hinani, here I am. What would you have of me, Lord? Moses takes his sandals off and he gets closer to this crazy experience. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at it. Look at God. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? I mean, in the ancient world, there's, there's count, I mean, there's gods everywhere. Every, everyone believed in different types of gods, river god, moon god, mountain god, and the people of Israel are holding on to this promise that some, some god made some promise to great, great, great grandfather Abraham. And so, who are you, God? What, what do I tell them? But the question reveals more. Moses isn't just asking, like, what is your name? There's a way to do that in Hebrew that everyone would recognize, what is your name? But he, the way he asks what is your name, what do we call you, is different. In the Hebrew construction, it stands out, but it means not just like what should we call you, but it's what is the meaning of your name. Again, it, it, Moses just doesn't want to know the name. He wants to know what is this God like? Who are you? What is your name? What shall I tell these people? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Each Asher Each. And he said to say, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. That I am who I am. Each Asher Each. Incredibly important. And it's incredibly difficult to try to wrap your minds around what God is actually trying to reveal himself by revealing his name to be this. Depending upon your English translation, you can see a number of ways this phrase is translated. Probably the most popular one that I've seen over and over again is I am who I am. But some people argue that it means I will be who I will be. Some say I exist because I exist. I am that which exists. I am that I am. The Hebrew language is incredibly flexible 
And so it's really hard to make a definitive case for anything. But just you need to know that people have debated this for a very, very long time. And especially among the Jewish rabbis, there's, I mean, hundreds of thousands of pages dedicated to understanding what this name means. One interesting interpretation that, that, that I think is onto something here is God uses the flexibility of the language on purpose. And, and in a sense, this, this name is trying to communicate that God is all of these, all of these things. He is I am who I am. He is I will be who I will be. He is I am which exists. The phrase in one sense just means God is ultimate being. He is the ultimate grounds of all existence, the ultimate being that gives life and sustains all things. Now, something even crazier happens next, and it's, it's a little complicated, but, but stick with me. I, I, I think we could, we could all get our minds around it, but at first, especially if you hate uh, grammar, I'm not going to like it. Immediately after God says his name is, it says this in verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, not I am that I am, the Lord, and the phrase here is actually, um, you might have heard the word Yahweh before. It's Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. For thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So what, what's going on? God just says, my name is I am that I am. And then in the next verse, he goes, my name's Yahweh, and that's my name forever and ever for all generations. So, so what, what exactly is going on, and which is God's name forever? Because if he says, like, this is my name, and by which you should know me for all generations, it might be important that we get this right. The I am that I am, the Eya Asher Eya, is the first person singular version of a Hebrew root word, Chaya. Kind of sounds like Chaya. It's close, Chaya. And God, when God reveals himself for the first time in Moses, he uses the first person version of that verb, I am. Immediately after and for the rest of Scripture, all 1,600-plus occurrences are no longer the first person singular of Chaya. They're the third person where we get Yahweh from. In other words, when God reveals his name, his self-declaration, he reveals it as ultimate being, I am. But then for the rest of Scripture, human beings are saying, he is. When God reveals himself, the ultimate being, it's I am. And then as you approach the holy name and character of person of God, it's a holy he is. And so the way you make this name up in Hebrew is just by four letters, a yod, a he, a wa, and a he. And those loosely correspond to our English letters, Y-H-W-H. In ancient Hebrew, the vowels were not in the written language. And so... Uh, there were vowels, of course, in the language that you pronounced, but when you wrote it down, you left out the vowels. I, people did it, and it worked, and it's like in English. If you were to remove all the vowels on a page of text, 
give it some time, you'd be able to figure out what it meant. And that's how the, the language worked. But whenever you see the word Lord in your Old Testament, if it's all in capitals, know that what is actually in the Hebrew text are these four letters, yod heh vah Y-H-W-H, and they are a third person construction of I am. God's name is Yahweh. He is. So let's read that same text over with all of this understanding. After God says, I am that I am, immediately after in verse 10, he says, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, he is, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, despite me putting this huge emphasis on calling God by his personal name, I am not going to argue that from here on out you don't say Lord or God, you just refer to him as Yahweh, because there's a different name that functions in this way, but you'll have to wait till week four to understand this vital piece of information. But for now, we're sticking with Yahweh. So we know what the actual name is. You know, yod heh vah YHWH, Yahweh, third person, and you got all that figured out. But, but you need to know more than just the name. My, name my, my wife's name is Michelle, and some of you know her, but you don't know her like I know her. It's one thing to know God's name, but you want to know more about him. You want to be like Moses who sees the fire and smoke on the top of the mountain, and you want to go up there. Here's the interesting thing, though. We're a lot like the ancient Israelites in that when we see the fire and the smoke in the presence of God in the mountain, rather than drawing near to him, we cower in fear. We stay on the bottom of the mountain. We stay distant. We know the name. What is he like? Incredibly powerful passage later on in Exodus. Names reveal character. They reveal person. They reveal a story. And later on, after God gives the Ten Commandments <clears throat> for the second time, it's a little incident you can read about in the book of Exodus, um, God actually expounds his name or explains his name. And it's done in this, this incredibly profound way. Exodus 34, listen to this. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed of the name of the Lord. The Lord, a God. Now, is there a repeating word that the author is trying to draw your attention here to? Let me change out Lord with what we just learned, Yahweh. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. That's a bizarre sentence. You following that? Yahweh reveals himself and he's about to proclaim the name of Yahweh. It's like Isaac entered the room and proclaimed the name of Isaac. Is it, does it mean I'm just saying my name out loud? What does it mean to proclaim the name of something? No, the ancient world, it, it, we're talking about the characteristics, the attribute, the person, the story of, of the one being described. Yahweh descends with intention to proclaim the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, a God, dot, 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 and he's about to describe what Yahweh means. It's one thing to know the name, 
but what is this God like? And what we're entering into is not a description from a human being describing him, but this is how God himself describes himself. Yahweh is proclaiming the name of Yahweh. Yahweh, Yahweh. A God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's how God describes himself. Now, there's probably at least half of you in the room, and it all depends on how our personalities are built and what we think about, but there's probably half of you who, you, as we read along, you saw all these nice descriptions of God, but the only thing you care about is that last line, right? I hear a couple of people doing the laugh. You know what I'm talking about. It's like, oh, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's giving, but what is up with him punishing children? Let that go for a second. We're going to walk through these, these characteristics and descriptions of God, and then we're going to deal with that last line. And trust me, it's good. There's really some, some really cool things going on with that last line. Um, this is how God wants to be known. And by the way, this, it's debated, but this most likely, this passage of Scripture, is the most quoted and alluded to verse in all of the Old Testament. Prophet after prophet in the Old Testament quote this verse. Some of them like paraphrase it. Some of them mix it up and put it in different order. But prophet after prophet and book after book in the Bible goes back to this. It's foundational. We have to know what this means. It's not just one thing to know God's name. We want to know what he's like. So how does God, Yahweh, Yahweh, describe himself? First, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. This word merciful is unique. It's the Hebrew word racham. And racham comes from a root that means a mother's womb. And so the, the word and kind of its building up its origins has this idea of a type of mercy and compassion and care that a mother has for her newborn baby. What is God's mercy, compassion, care, and love like? It's like a mother's love for her newborn baby. There's a story in the Old Testament where two women are fighting over a baby. They're both claiming that this baby is actually theirs. Most likely what happened is one woman had a miscarriage and lost her baby, the other didn't, and now both are claiming a right to this baby. Their issue goes before the king, and the king goes, okay, I know how to settle this issue. Cut the baby in half and give half to each mom. And immediately, one of the mothers moved and having racham, says, no, no, take the baby, take the baby. You, the, the, the other woman, that's the rightful mother, go. And the king immediately says, give the baby to the woman who just spoke because that's the true mother. Because one mother was willing to lose her child in order to save the child. Racham, mercy, compassion. It's like the love a mother has for her baby. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful, and gracious, slow to anger. That phrase, slow to anger, actually means longed nostrils, like really long nostrils. This is why um, every so often you'll meet someone who like, goes like, 
My Bible translation, I just want the exact word for word. I don't want any fluff in there. You wouldn't know what long nostrils mean. Like that, it literally says God has long nostrils here. But the translators, God bless them, know that that's a Hebrew kind of idiomatic phrase that means slow to anger. Doesn't mean like God's up there in heaven and has got long nose. No, it means slow to anger. It's, it's an idiom. It's poetic, which means when God chooses to describe himself, he uses poetry and metaphor. This is beautiful composition in Hebrew. It's not just like a linear point-by-point -point description of God. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I won't spend too much time here because we've talked about this word steadfast love. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. It's a Hebrew word, chesed. It's got a rich, long development in history and meaning. But what is interesting is the way steadfast love and the word faithfulness are interacting. Some more grammar. I think I know how to say this word. Hendiadis. Any grammar like, you gotta be a hardcore grammar, lit major, geek. Anyone know? Anyway, it's, it's, it, what, it's what happens when you smash two words together in a way so that each word is mutually defining the other word. So it's not saying he is, he has steadfast love and he has faithfulness. It's saying his steadfast love is his faithfulness and his faithfulness is his steadfast love. It's a way to draw emphasis to this. It's a way of saying um, God is faithful in a steadfast, loving way, a chesed way, which if you know kind of the history of that word, the text is trying to say that God is faithful always to the very bitter end. God always stays true to his promises, to Abraham, to Israel, to his people, and to you. God always stays true to his promises to the very bitter end, no matter how much it cost him. I'll say that again. God stays true to his promises no matter how much it cost him. He has chesed, steadfast love for his people. Verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means will clear the guilty. And again, there's some, poetry, there's some poetic stuff going on. It's saying he, he keeps this love for thousands. Now, again, does it mean literally like thousands of people? Like, you know, God's really nice to the first 7,000 people that show up on Black Friday, and then everyone else gets full price. No, no, no. It's, it's poetry. It's trying to invoke something. God is saying he's merciful to, to multitudes, to, to billions. But he's also a God of justice, and the, the guilty will not get away with it forever. The people who practice injustice may prosper for a moment, but in times, God just, but in the end, God's justice will come down, either in this life or the next. All the evil that's done in the world, all the injustice, either in this life or the next, God says he's going to deal with it. And you have to understand that God's wrath and his anger against sin is not a primary or fundamental characteristic or attribute 
to his nature. That's why in scripture you'll see things like God is love and God is holy, but you never see God is wrath. Wrath and anger are secondary characteristics. They are not fundamental or primary. Wrath and anger are a response to a circumstance. Particularly, wrath and anger are a secondary response out of God's love and compassion. When I see um, evil, it, it of course bothers me and disturbs me, but if, if something messed up is done to my kids, my anger and wrath is, is all the, the stronger, right? Like even, I mean, I got, I got toddlers, so it's like, I'm just look, I'm looking like when those kids are at the playground, they're playing, you know, there's always one of them other kids that just, you know, wants to be a tough guy. And I'm telling you, like, yeah, I know the other kid isn't really thinking through all things and isn't like saying, oh, how can I go and make this little girl cry and take her toys? Like, I, I know it's not that complicated. Just kids can be selfish, they want to play. But man, I'm looking out. And I see some, you know, some punk four-year-old coming up and like takes my daughter's toys. I'm not, I'm not rational at that point. I walk up, hey, tough guy, what up? What up? You gonna throw down? Well, it's easy to pick on my daughter. What's up? But you always gotta check the other dad first to make sure if things, you know, if things go down, you, you know, you gotta be, at, you, you say, come here, come here, young buck. I could take your daddy. I could take him out. I'm stronger than him. Wrath and anger are a secondary response to evil and injustice. Other, in other words, God's primary, foundational, he's ho- God is holy, God is love, God is righteousness. But wrath and anger are a secondary response based out of the goodness of God. John Stott, theologian of the modern day, in describing God's kind of anger, he says his anger and his wrath is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all of its forms and manifestations. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. God one day will have enough and he will end injustice and evil. Now lastly, where I told you not to go, we can go there now. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, before, before I talk about what's going on, I, I, I want to preface it by this. There are things in the Bible that should disturb you, that you shouldn't like. Meaning, every single culture on the earth and that has ever existed, when they read God's word, there should be things that offend them and bother them because no culture is perfect. Every culture has blind spots, every culture has things that they don't see right, and when you encounter the scriptures, you you have an offense. I mean, it, it seems bizarre to us, but throughout Christian history and in many places today, when the Bible says you should have one wife, there are plenty of people who are going, I can't believe that. Do they, do they not know? I mean, I've worked in these places. Do they not know our culture? Do they not know the situations? Are they saying, uh, my second and third wife aren't my real wife and that, that I don't love them? Every culture has blind spots, and when you approach the text, there should be places where it offends you. Otherwise, your culture, randomly, just out of all the cultures that have ever existed, happens to be the one that God's, God's word just truly affirms in every possible way. By the way, 
our culture wants to have a Bible that just affirms everything about themselves in every possible way. And so it's all nothing but encouragement and how awesome we are. And the Bible cuts sometimes. It says, this isn't right about you. If you're never bothered by what the Bible is telling you, you're not reading it slowly enough. I mean, it really, really, I mean, I don't know how you could read the Sermon on the Mount and not be disturbed. It's like uh, churches in America that um, when they read the Bible, they never see its critique of materialism. Just never see it. In fact, there's whole theologies built upon God wanting to give you more material things. And it's just, just bizarre. So we have to be careful to allow Scripture to speak and not try to just do away with hard text in the Bible. But there are instances where, say for instance in this, you kind of have a gut level response like, does God really punish children for their parents? Like, does the, the Bible, does the Bible show that happening? Are there places in the Bible where it says something opposite? Does the person revealed in Jesus does the person revealed in Jesus, and specifically Jesus as Christ crucified, correspond to a passage like this? So you have to ask these difficult questions. Now, in this case, I think there's something else going on here. And it's not just because I'm, I'm bothered by the text. I know this because there are countless other places in the Bible where it says, God does not punish children for their parents' sins. In fact, the guy who's hearing this, Moses, writes down God's law that he gets directly from God, and in the same collection of books, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Moses says, this is God's law. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for their own sin. In other words, children aren't responsible for their parents' crimes and sin, and, and vice versa. Then also there's this story in the Torah, the first five books, that talks about how God punishes a generation of people and doesn't allow them to go into the promised land. He says, you're sinful, you're wicked, you're going to get punished, you can't go into the promised land. But who does get to go into the promised land? Their children. So you have a law, you have a story, and then later in the Old Testament, you have these bizarre verses. This is, inc this is incredible right here. You have prophets quoting this verse but misquoting it, changing the meaning of it. They're almost clarifying it to you on purpose. This is Jeremiah, and he says, you show love to thousands, but bring the punishment for their parents' sins into the laps of the children after them. Great and mighty God, whose name is Lord Almighty. The punishment is brought into the laps of the children. Now, you have verses that are saying something different, stories that are saying something different. You have prophets kind of saying this, this verse differently. There, there, there's something theologically that people call the active and passive wrath of God. Active wrath of God says, I've done something wrong and something happens to me. A passive wrath is where the consequences, punishment, and repercussions fall upon someone else because of someone's sin. So, an easy way to explain this is, when mom and dad sin, who pays the price? The children. When mom and dad have a painful, horrible separation, who pays the price? The kids do. 
Mom and dad are doing illegal activity and they get busted and the kids get taken from foster family to foster family. Who's paying the price? The kids are. And guess what? Those kids who are brought up in that crazy chaotic environment who are paying the price oftentimes inherit dysfunction and problems that then get passed on to who? Their kids. And many of you here today, some of you come from great backgrounds, family backgrounds, some of you come from some brutal places. And you know that even though you became a Christian and you know what's right here and what's wrong here, that stuff, that gunk, that mess is still in your life and you have to fight every day to break those habits and the chains that have been passed on to you. That's passive thing. It's, it's going into the lap of the children. Now, there's something else going on here. I highlighted steadfast love for thousands and the last line, the third and fourth generation. In Hebrew, there's a way to contrast things in a kind of like chiastic way. And I mentioned the fact that steadfast love to thousands is not like literal. Steadfast, when God says he's doing steadfast love to thousands, it's a way of saying his mercy is huge. It's massive. To, to the thousands, not just thousands, millions, billions of people. The mercy is huge. But then when it comes to the punishment or the repercussions, that is limited to the third and fourth generation. It's a limiting and constraining of what gets passed on. Now, here's the other piece that makes this incredibly important. In the ancient world, and you actually, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you see occurrences of this. When you curse someone, or you pronounce a judgment or punishment upon a person, you do it to their line forever. Like you don't say, oh, Isaac, may your children be cursed, but only to the second or third, and then mercy shall come in the fourth and fifth. In the ancient world, you curse the line of someone forever. And in Genesis, this is what you do. There's people who's like, some, they're, they're people, the whole group of people are cursed forever. This is what the gods did. This is what human beings did to each other. So this is actually standing out in contrast to everything else in the ancient world. It's a way of saying God's mercy is to the thousands, but the punishment, the, the, the consequence, all of those things are to the third and fourth. Our eyes as modern ears who only want to see blessing, that stands out in a negative way. But to the initial audience, this whole passage is about what? God's mercy and compassion. That's what this is about. So his mercy is great. It outweighs the consequence. Now, I want to read this again now that we've walked through it all. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful, a mercy and compassion and love that's like what a mother has for her newborn. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love to the billions. He keeps his steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgression and sin, but he's not gonna let evil go on forever unchecked. There comes a day when he says enough is enough, and he's limiting and constraining the punishments and horrible consequences that are visited upon the children because of their parents' sin. What is God's name? It's Yahweh. What is he like? He's like this. Now, a couple implications for us. Um, 
This should change how you relate to God. God gives his people his name and he invites them to the table. God isn't the God hidden in fire and smoke forever. He comes down and says, come and meet with me face to face, dine with me, know my name. God is closer to you than you are to yourself. Second, there is no such thing as the ordinary. If you know this Jesus, he has put his spirit into you. Every moment is a burning bush moment. God is the forever present tense I am, the grounds of all being, the ultimate being. He is near, he is here. Every moment, every space is infused with his presence. There are burning bushes all around us. Nothing is ordinary. Everything is extraordinary. Third, he is unchanging. It's not like God is just good to you on one day and then he switches and he wants to cut you off the next day. God is faithful and true to his promises, to his people, and to you to the very bitter end no matter how much it cost him. And lastly, he hears the cries. It's incredibly relevant for, for today. This story starts off with the collective cries of people crying out to God saying, where are you? And isn't it interesting that when God chooses to reveal his name and his character, it's when the collective cries of the people are, are shouting out, crying out, God, where are you? And so, you guys know all the stuff that's going on. Is Mexico a massive earthquake killing dozens of people? Texas is underwater. Hurricanes going through Florida. Racial tensions in this country boiling over. Countries collapsing right now. Countries making threats of nuclear war. Several genocides taking place. You're not going to hear about them all in the news. Myanmar right now, there's probably an outbreak of, of a genocide going on right now. There's a small uh, Muslim minority that's been persecuted for a few decades um, over, believe it or not, a kind of militant, violent form of Buddhist with the, the head monk calling for destruction of, of the snakes being killed in horrific ways. When God hears the cries of the oppressed, that is when he reveals his name and his power and might. And so in a few moments, we're going to, to pray as a, as a congregation. Greg, Pastor Greg's gonna come up here uh, and lead us through some prayer. But I, I want people to know that this is how our story begins. God begins with hearing the cries of the hurting. And it's not just say it's over there. I know some of you are going through some really heavy stuff right now. God hears your cries. He knows your name. He invites you to the table. He wants to talk with you face to face. He hears the cries. There's a, before we pray, I just want to read a blessing over you from Numbers. This is how God tells the priest in the Old Testament to pray over the people and bless them. It says, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. What this world needs right now is you and me to have the name of Yahweh upon us. That's not a tattoo. That's not like a writing on an arm. That is embodying the grace and the compassion and mercy of the one revealed in the burning bush. And so may you go with that blessing and may we as a church come together and pray on behalf of many people who are crying out to God in these moments. Amen. Um, a lot of stuff going on right now. Uh, one of the things I wanted to re- remind you as a congregation is that a portion of every dollar that comes in um, through tithes and offerings goes strictly to our missions effort, and we use those in all different types of ways to help the, the, the missions teams and the different uh, groups that we uh and the countries that we work with, and we're we're currently also you know assessing how we can be helping uh, these situations, whether it be over in Texas or um, in these other areas of Florida, Cuba, and different places that are impacted. Uh, and it's not going to just be a one-time thing. It's uh, now that Harvey, the, the hurricane is is fizzling out. Their their journey is just beginning, and oftentimes we then go on to the next catastrophe, and that is now Hurricane Irma that's, that's hitting Florida. But we wanted you guys to know that, you know, we're, we're closely monitoring this, and, and it isn't just what, we, what can we do now, but, you know, what is the Lord potentially going to call us to be able to have an influence in over the next six months or even longer, and potentially even whether or not we send teams of people into areas that have great need. But one of the things we wanted to also offer in, in your handout, you could see we, we posted a couple of places that if you feel, you know, God leading you to, uh, to give or su- support, we wanted to provide a couple of reputable organizations because there's a lot of scams and a lot of stuff that you have to be very, very careful so there's a couple of places that we designated in the handout, and you can talk to uh, Sam Whitaker if you have any questions on those particular things, but we wanted to give uh, at least a, an immediate sense of, of direction for those that, that might be wanting to do something. Um, you know, there, there's so much human suffering going on right now, and it's, it's often hard, especially when we're sitting and we have a beautiful day, and it's hard to fathom that in another place, people are going through intense, intense suffering, and sometimes it's, it's hard to know how to pray. But we want to pray uh, because I feel that God has called the church to do that when our brothers and sisters are suffering. And, you know, as Isaac was, was speaking, um, one of the passages that, often jumps out at me is Psalm 46, and it simply says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. And it says, therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives away, and though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, and though its waters roar and foam, 
though the mountains tremble at its swelling, and it's just a perfect analogy for the journey of this life and the, the things, the storms that we go through. And what's interesting is that towards the end of this passage, one of the most well-known verses is what? Be still and know that I am God. And it's hard to, to consider, how, how do I be still amidst such a horrific storm, whether it be in our own personal lives or what's going on today? And so we have to trust that God is moving amidst such immense suffering. We have to trust that because I know that. I had a friend that used to fly, and he said, it's one thing to fly during the day when it's beautiful out like this where you could see everything, but then it's another thing when you fly into a storm and you can't see anything, and then you have to, you have to determine what you're doing based on your instrumentation, and that's how most people get killed because they're not used to flying based on just instrumentation alone. We need to see. And so when we can't see when we're in the storm, our instrumentation is, is scripture. So I, I just wanted to everyone to stand and I want to pray a prayer uh, for everything that's going on. And, and just a, a quick update. Most of you know that Hurricane Irma kind of sideswiped Cuba. And I spoke with um, Oscar and Rachel this morning. <coughs> and that's Irma's kind of moving on from Cuba now, but they're, in, uh, they're fighting extreme rains and different things. But uh, the building that we helped Remedios, the, the pastor of Remedios build, the, the third story roof actually flew off and it came crashing down into the courtyard area there and so we're really thankful that no one was hurt. But they're going to they're gonna need a lot of help in the next couple of months um, and now Irma is, is now as we speak moving into Florida and we have a lot of friends and how many of you here today have anybody that lives in that area? So, wow, you can see the, the impact. And so uh, this morning we want to pray. We want to pray for those that uh, are in the midst of the storm. We want to pray for those um, dealing on the outset of the storm in Texas. And, and as overwhelming as it is, we, we have to believe that God is present in the lives of the families that are pulling their furniture out of their homes, in the lives of the families that have lost loved ones, in the lives of families who are still looking for their loved ones. Father, it is hard to pray today. It is. We seek you in the, in the sense that this is often a reminder of just how little we control in this life. It's a reminder that this world is not part of your original design. And it's also a reminder that we need to be challenged to trust you in deeper ways that maybe we never thought we could. But for me, it's also a reminder that out of the worst of things, you are never not in control. Out of the worst of things, you can create something so good. And so, Father, we pray for those that are impacted today. We pray for those families. We pray for the emergency workers. We pray 
for those that are seeking out their loved ones. We pray for those who are fleeing in the evacuation areas in Florida today. We pray for the families. We pray for the situation. We pray for the, the resources in the, uh, the police agencies and the, the emergency crews that they can be effective within their communities. Father, we ask that you would be present. We pray for the churches in those areas that you would create uh, a position of influence for them right now. That the, this would be an opportunity for the church to reach out and be an influencer. Father, we, as we begin this series of, of understanding your names today, Yahweh, we know Yahweh is in control. And so, Father, help them in the areas that they need to trust you more today, God. We give you thanks, Lord, and we pray this blessing upon all of them. We pray this in your name. Amen.